Welcome to Cathedral Talk, a podcast about architecture and Minecraft, where we converse to save Notre Dame. should continue the tradition about starting with errata does that sound good uh zach is there something you would like to maybe make an addendum to uh i'd like to uh, um to praise tom a little bit he's been editing every single one of our podcasts uh, so far and part of this errata actually has to do with saving myself from giving more errata there's, there's a lot of conversation in the previous episode about Stellar Fusion that I got wrong, and Tom generously cut it out. Here's the problem, right? You're a physicist, so you never learned your periodic table of elements to the same rigor that the chemists did. The weird thing is that the periodic table was created so people wouldn't have to memorize the, the elements, that they could just look it up. So forcing school children to memorize the periodic table is completely against the uh, intent of creating the periodic table in the first place. And yet I'm sure many a board teacher has done it many, many times. Yeah, I, I think we've talked about authorial intent on the podcast before and how we can just ignore it. I mean, that's and that was the problem. You 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 were trying to do it from memorization uh, last time and not looking at it. Yeah, just look at the table. It wouldn't have been the periodic table that would have saved me. It would have been uh, a chart of binding energy per nucleon. Um, And I obviously didn't have that ready. So listeners are probably curious about what my mistake was. Tom generously left in that I said lead is stable. Lead is stable. That's not the errata. I, for some reason, thought that main sequence stars would fuse all the way up into lead. Uh, and Tom generously cut that out. Yeah, there was a long segment where, like, everything you said was right. Like, all the words, like, how things fuse up with the one problem about you kept saying lead over and over again. It's like, it's iron. It's iron, not lead. The the funny thing is, I don't, I don't have, I don't remember the source material very well, but Tom gave me plenty of off ramps. He's like, it's, it's lead. It's it's lead. And I'm no, pretty sure no, it's, David it's also... Iron, oh, sorry, iron. <laughs> He's still doing it. <laughs> I'm still doing it. I'm pretty sure David also did it. I'm pretty sure David also gave me the off-ramps, but I don't know if your material your material didn't make it into the final cut, David. How did you how did you edit that, yeah? I, I had to be pretty uh pretty pretty hard with the uh, scalpel. Yeah. There was no re-recording, right? No. No, there was no re-recording. It was just like fortunately there was just enough said that was passable so that hopefully we wouldn't PO too many astrophysicists listening to us. And of course, since it was edited so beautifully, people are 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 thinking currently upon listening to this episode what about all the nonsense that you were saying about language aren't you gonna wreck on any of that stuff no that was perfect nothing wrong there (laughs) that was perfect i i do want to apologize to all of my friends who express themselves artistically and aesthetically through written language and through spoken language my criticism on that wasn't meant to be about the form itself. I think expressing yourself 
through language, especially natural language, is beautiful. I think that's the purpose of it. My criticism was on using those art forms for something as crude as information transfer. And so I want to I wanna celebrate all of my writer friends, all of my poet friends. I mean, speaking just for myself, too, when I listen to you saying that, that's how I interpreted that. But I can see that clarifying that might help some people, too. And, and you, were, you were making some mention about um, how your wife doesn't experience uh, music in the same way that um, we were discussing, that uh, it's really any form of artistic expression or aesthetic expression. So woodworking, metalworking, any, any sort of craftsmanship where art is involved. I think those are, those are things to be celebrated. And I didn't, I didn't want to exclude other forms of art. Um, painting, photography, all those things are, are I think, the, the pinnacle of uh, human expression. We were just talking about music, and that's a topic we're going to be revisiting in the later part of this episode, because it's something that's important to the three of us. But just because it's important to the three of us doesn't mean it's exclusively the domain of what is important to the human condition. So those are my errata. Well, it's a great example, but it's, yes, you're right. It's not the only example. It just happens to be a good one. David has no errata. Everything I always say is perfect. And if not, Tom bleeps me. And even when the things I'd say are perfect, he still bleeps me. Yeah, sometimes I just bleep you. Since we're on the topic for just a little bit, uh, you know, it'd be great to like maybe get this in stone. How does stellar fusion work again? Putting him on the spot. Well, when two nuclei love each other very much, uh, they do a special dance and form a heavier element and some energy is produced as a byproduct well and i think one particular side question that we didn't we weren't quite clear on most normal stars like our very i guess uninteresting normal sun that we orbit in our own solar system they will fuse up to the element of oxygen if i've got that correct um, at least that seems to be the main uh, final stage of what their fusion will look like. And then it's only the very massive, heavier stars like Betelgeuse, for example, that'll uh, keep fusing all the way up to iron. And then, again, one of the issues we were having was lead, we kept talking about because it's what they're building Notre Dame's roof out of, is a very stable element. But I guess according to the physicists, iron is sort of, considered to be the most stable element because as Zach was alluding to, iron is the first element that it takes more energy to fuse elements together to get iron than you get from that process. Yeah, so that's what I was alluding to with the binding energy of the atom. So it, it has nothing to do with, I mean, it has something to do with the stability of, of the atom, but there are isotopes of lead that are not stable and there are isotopes of lead that are stable. Um, I don't remember about uh, iron and nickel, um, about what their half-lives are. Is nickel right after iron in the table? Yeah. Okay. Because it, I, I did also see somewhere that some stars do go like maybe one above iron to like nickel, but they certainly don't make it all the way up to lead. <laughs> right, right, right. And it's um, it's not about their stability. It's about the amount of energy it takes to fuse versus the energy you get out of the fusion. You were very correct about the one point you made about how you do get all those heavier elements when the supernova happens because it's that supernova that's suddenly 
creates the ever hotter temperatures necessary for that fusion. I'm glad I get one thing right per episode. That's really my quota. Yeah, it's, that's that's pretty good. Uh, the <laughs> That makes me really nervous about all of Tom's cathedral facts, if that's our quota. <laughs> that's my quota. That's not your guys' quota. <laughs> yeah, um, all those elements after iron get fused together from the intense heat of the uh, supernovas that you get from the large stars that explode at the end of their lives. Uh, basically, fusion requires extremely hot heat and even the heat of a very powerful star can only go so far you need something even hotter so you need a supernova to get lead there's a lot of uh i mean i know this has been talked about for decades but there's a lot of growing interest about infusion being a potentially viable commercially viable energy product in the world the u.s or whatever a lot of new companies, a lot of new venture capital is going towards it because I think I think it has to do with the fact that our super uh, magnets or our, our electromagnets are finally good enough that it can hold everything in and at a reasonable cost in a, in a size that a building that can hold it all in. Um, not there yet, but I know some demonstration plants are looking to be coming online over the next decade or so. I wonder if it's one of those situations where, you know, as you know, all the tech people in like Silicon Valley, were just working on random tech stuff. And at some point, one person said, Hey, wait a minute, we just have invented a new super magnet. Does that mean fusion's possible? And then suddenly they go, Oh yeah, maybe we should call somebody. Well, there's one project that's been working I think it's the ITER, uh, I-T-E-R, I, I don't know how, how you say it. Uh, I think it's in France. Uh, maybe it's next to Notre Dame. Uh, <laughs> that's been working on for since at least the 70s, if not earlier. And they're still like 20 years out from construction. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Meanwhile, there are brand new companies that have formed in the past five or f- 10 years that are looking to have some uh, sort of facility over the, in like by 2030, 2035. So it's weird how you can have older tech that is is on such a slower time scale and new things come in and uh, go much faster. I have a relative working in that sector and he tells me it uh, fusion has always been 40 years away. I think I think the joke is, yeah, fusion's always been 40 years away, but now it's only five years away. It'll probably stay five years away. Maybe 10. It'll stay 10 years away, but it's not 40 years away. It's just continually 10 years away. Just like self-driving cars. I'll have to ask him again. Well, I think we've successfully made our astrophysicist, Minecraft lover, cathedral building audience happy. Good job. Or at least at least not angry. Hopefully. All right. Well, anyway, um, so on to just a quick, a quick update. This won't take long today. Uh, but I have continued construction on the two-to-one scale Notre Dame in Minecraft. Um, our website now has a new tab where you can click on the third tab that says Notre Dame two-to-one scale. And uh, you can start to click through different photographs showing progress of the stages of construction. And you can already see the sort of semicircular chevet uh, or um, sort of the outer semicircular wall that we talked about last time. But now we've got some of these side walls of more buttresses that are basically going to encapsulate the choir in the weeks ahead. And so sort of that whole outer wall was the first thing that was built in those early years, right around 1163. And then the next stage will be probably a really long stage where I'm going to be figuring out how to do the vaulting 
of the twin aisles of the ambulatory that wrap around the central choir and apse. If the previous stage can't be described as a long stage, I'm very nervous about how long the next one's going to take. Look, I if anybody out there who's listening has ever tried to start a podcast before, there's a lot of back work that needs to be done, and a lot of those delays were not Minecraft-related. Also, again, you know, if this thing is done by 2024, which I think I'm well on target to, Uh, That'll be good because, you know, that'll be a nice sort of milestone to coincide with, you know, when they're certainly not going to be done repairing Notre Dame, but they hope to open their doors. Is that really the the timing that you're thinking for building Minecraft 2024? I don't think I I don't I don't know. I remember signing any contract about that. Well, I mean, it's one of those things, right? Like maybe within one year, I'll have the bulk that was done by the, you know, 14th century. But then after that, right, a lot more renovations happen where this wall gets bumped out. uh, These windows get opened up a bit. You know, there's a lot more that happens over that time period. And since I'm trying to replicate that process, you know, it's it's sort of like rebuilding it several times over. And so, yeah, that will take a while. So what happened in the 14th century? Uh, Gosh, I I should have brought my book here. So I, I don't have exact dates for you. So maybe I'll follow up with that. But. The general summary is right now we're working on the choir, so the eastern half of the cathedral. And then what will come after that will be the transept, which is sort of the crossing section that makes the cross of the Christian cruciform on the ground plan. Then after that comes the nave. Uh, and then after that comes the bases of the Western bell towers. Yeah, maybe you're about to get this. I think Zach's question is like, why did things get bumped out? Is that your question, Zach? Zach always has ulterior motives to the questions that he's asking. So when was the organ installed? Wow. Okay. So the organ, I believe, I think is a 19th century organ, but don't quote me on that. I'll have to go back. But it's it's a much, 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 much later installation. There was never one previous than that? You're going to have to cut your don't quote me on that out because I've got someone saying that there are various references to organs in uh, 1357. Uh, yeah, but I don't think it's that organ. Yeah, we don't care about that organ. We care about... Oh, I thought that's what you were asking. I thought you were asking the particular organ that has been in Notre Dame today. Tom isn't picking up on the ulterior motives here. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Organs were definitely in use before then. Just I thought you were referring to the present day one. Okay. No, I was I was I was trying to to think about if we could hold so you you have the choir under construction and that's going to be completed but in this 14th century milestone that you've set for yourself and I wanted to know if we were to hold musical services in the in the choir would we have organ accompaniment does, has somebody made a mod for acoustics in Minecraft? There are note blocks. Yeah, there are note blocks. We could build an entire note block uh, system under the cathedral. Well, it's certainly big enough. Yeah. The note blocks can be the organ and then we'll just sing over it. Exactly. Somebody actually did a pretty... I, I, I'll put the link in chat if I can find it. Or the link for our show notes. But somebody did a pretty cool Minecraft build for the Disney song from Hunchback of Notre Dame... I think it's God help the outcasts uh, entirely done with note blocks. And it like, it just runs up and down a very long nave length. That's supposed to simulate sort of Notre Dame. It was pretty good. I have to say I was pretty impressed with that. That's an interesting choice of song from that musical. Yeah. I mean, it was nice. That's one of my, I, I like that song. Although it's certainly, I don't think one of the most famous ones, but yeah, good. All the power to them. If we're going to have musical services in there, are they going to be accompanied 
with anything at, at that at that point or would we have to do some sort of like gregorian chant kind of stuff i feel like you're, you're really trying to force this here a little bit <laughs> i was was uh, trying to be smooth and then you're just calling it out why don't we talk about medieval music <laughs> In Notre Dame. That's a great idea. In the oh. 1100s and oh, 1200s. Why didn't I think of that? Um, oh, man. Yeah. No. Um, let's let's not have an easy transition from what are you constructing into what what would be what would be heard. And I think sometimes it's good to just time. have a jarring switch. I mean, you guys have lived with me my whole life. I, I, folks, in case you didn't know this about me. I've got a bit of a reputation as somebody who rapidly changes conversational topics in large groups very quickly. And sometimes people get a little annoyed with me. I don't know if that's come through on the podcast or not. but um, I think you're more attentive to what we are saying here because you have to based on the medium. Whereas in real life, you can be all off in your own head and not uh, be paying attention to the, your surroundings necessarily. Well, anyway, here we are. <laughs> Gregorian chat. Whatever you were saying, I don't really care about that. Let's talk about the subject that's at hand now. Well, okay. So let me, let me follow up with one thing you said earlier about, and again, I'm sorry if I was confused there with what you said about organs. I thought you were referring to the specific organ, but you were talking about organs in general. So the kind of music that was sort of being developed around the building of Notre Dame in 1163 the kind of sort of Christian chant music that was occurring was something called organum, which I guess is sort of derived as choral music that sounds like an organ. So um, I'm not entirely clear if that was the name for the music at the time or if sort of people retroactively gave it that name a bit later. But sounds like it was probably a name that was applied not that much later, if 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 so. So I mean, my my experience of medieval music is limited to almost exclusively uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where you have the monks walking through the middle of town, hitting themselves in the head with uh, their Bibles. It was an accurate depiction of the times. To the best of my understanding, uh, that is. Gregorian chant. And apparently Gregorian chant is poorly named. Apparently Gregorian chant has nothing to do at all with Pope Gregory, whom it was named after. It's just one of those names that stuck. Yeah, but not sure who it actually is, why it got that association that didn't come up in the research I did either. Just somehow. Hey, it was a useless fact and I thought I'd just bring up a useless fact. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, no. Useless facts are fun. <laughs> so yeah, Gregorian chant is the, you know, kind of the drone music where you just have usually men singing one line kind of up and down, up and down uh, with not all that much, I don't know the word, variation, depth, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying not to say a value judgment. Well, so what, what I found was interesting when I did a little bit of reading on this this week was that Gregorian chant, or at least Christian plain chant, I think maybe is the more general term. I'm, I'm not 100% mm -hmm. sure about that. But that there was an interesting evolution over several hundred years of the styles that were developed by the composers. Unless I'm mistaken, and I, I certainly could be, a Gregorian chant is where it's sort of contemporaneous with the construction of the cathedral. And early Renaissance, we are gifted with Bach. Um, and there's there's a big difference between the style of music that I, I think... You don't have to be terribly well versed in classical music 
to have heard um, at least one Bach mm-hmm. um, piece that it's it's very different than Gregorian chant. So there's there's a lot of evolution in that ecclesiastical music over a, a couple hundred years. To the best of my understanding, which is is pretty poor, that a lot of the innovations that occurred over the medieval period are associated with some composers that worked in and around the Notre Dame de Paris Cathedral. Yeah. I didn't realize this uh, when we first started. It seems like what is termed the Notre Dame School of Music is pretty dang influential. Yeah. At least in church music, uh, Christian church music. Uh, well, what period again is it? So this is the late 1100s to early 1200s. Yeah, so that's exactly when they were first constructing the beginning uh, choir of Notre Dame. Yeah. Zach, you were the one who wanted to, to talk about this one for a little while. Was this something that you knew beforehand or were you just Googling things around Notre Dame because we were doing a podcast in Notre Dame and you came across this? No, one of my thesis papers in multivariate calculus in high school was around the intersection between music and architecture wait hold up hold up hold up hold up one of your thesis papers in multivariate calculus in high school is that what you just said yeah what the hell kind of high school did you go to yeah actually that just flew right over my head you you took calc c in high school yeah all right, moving on. All right, okay, okay, <laughs> all right. I don't know what else to tell you. The sad thing is we have one or two other friends, David, who are listening to this right now going, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, one of the other things I did in that multivariate class is make an animation based off of uh, Flatland, oh, yeah. the, the sexist mathematical geometry book. Is it sexist? I haven't read it. I just know of it. I, I think if you if you decide to read it, you'll be like, wow, this is really regressive ideas about women. Interesting. Um, but that's, that's a topic for another day. And so this multivariate class, there were a lot of math adjacent concepts. And when I did that research, um, I came across the idea that a lot of composers would write compositions based off of the architecture of a particular building. And certainly we have talked in previous episodes about how a new layer of paint would change the acoustics of a particular building. That's not exactly what's in play here. I think with classical architecture, you see a lot of emphasis placed on the ratios between one side of a building and another side of a building. See a golden ratio pop up a whole bunch. There are common technical terms between architecture, mathematics, and and music. Harmonics and harmony is one of those that crosses all three areas, and they share a lot in common. So the ratios and the dimensions of the building can be translated into the the ratios between notes and phrases in in your piece of music. So when you're composing something, obviously you want it to sound good in the space that you are constructing it in, um, but the the actual structure of the music that you are composing it reflects the structure of the building that it's composed for. I remember learning those particular facts of the golden ratio with both building construction and the ratios of notes and like major scales in Donald Duck and Math Magic Land. Which you've watched like 400 times in your classes, I know. Well, I mean, when you need a good like 22 minute video that is mathy, 
Um, it's a pretty good one to just sort of go to. Mind you, you can't understand anything that Donald says, but you kind of realize that you don't need to. You only just need to listen to the narrator. Exactly. Remind me how uh, in music the golden ratio applies. Is it the octave? Okay. So here's where um, I can't go too in depth or else I'll, I'll be pulling a Zach like uh, he did last time. Ouch. That cuts. And then I'll have to do errata for the following episode. But the ratios of the frequencies of the vibrations in the air, right, Mm -hmm. for different notes, like I think a note A is like 440 hertz. Is that right? That's concert A. Yep. Concert A. And then one octave higher is 880 hertz, I believe, right? Yep. And then if you then look through a lot of the other notes in the major scale, the ratio of one to five and one to three in the octave um those come from simple fractions and the exact connection to the golden ratio i don't fully remember but uh clearly i haven't watched donald duck and math magic land enough times i need to watch it one more but that type of uh harmonic relationship between music and math while interesting isn't isn't exactly the type of relationship between the architecture and music that these composers are working with there are certainly probably some compositions where they do care about that and they're doing golden ratio stuff but the type of composition that i was interested in in high school for this paper was um about using reflecting the ratios of the building in the ratios in the in the in the composition uh if you were doing a composition for let's say the parthenon or something let's pretend that the parthenon uses the golden ratio for its walls i don't remember if that's true or not um then what you're asking would would come in play here. But if there's a building that doesn't use the golden ratio in its architecture, then the, the golden ratio wouldn't wouldn't show up in the composition. I just want to do a I just wanted to allude to one point you made a little, little bit ago about architecture and you know the different priorities that builders of different generations had towards um, like acoustics, uh, the use of the building. Uh, the design of the building with like the golden ratio and stuff. One thing I find interesting, I think about a lot of classical architecture. And again, this is somewhat debatable. I'm not saying that this is set in stone completely, but I think it's arguable that to the builders of the classical era, especially like the Greeks with the Parthenon and even up through a good bit of ancient Rome, that for a lot of buildings, the prioritization of the building of a monument or an edifice or some temple would often be to prioritize making the exterior perfect, make the exterior the best feature of the building. And it wasn't up until, I don't, arguably, you could say that the Pantheon in Rome, which is the first huge sort of masonry dome built almost 2,000 years ago, if you look at that building, it's got a fine portico on the front, but most of it is just this very simple cylindrical canister that's containing that dome. And it's kind of ugly on the outside. Yeah, it is. And when you get to that stage, it's uh, definitely a building that prioritizes the interior far more than the exterior. And so then by the time you get to Gothic cathedrals in the Middle Ages, like Notre Dame, 
you're starting to hit this sort of harmony point where people are really concerned about making the interior perfect with all the windows and the lighting of a Gothic cathedral, but at the same time also emphasizing the exterior as well. Just wanted to make that point. So that's that's where my interest uh, originated to David's question uh, originally is like, why why do you want to do the Notre Dame School of Music as a topic? And so I, I, was, I was doing some research and my Google flu has sort of uh, deteriorated over the years, and I couldn't find compositions for Notre Dame de Paris that were specifically constructed based off of the dimensions of the building. And the only thing that I could find, which was something that I hadn't heard about before, was this Notre Dame School of Music. Notre Dame School of Music this, Notre Dame School of Music that, Notre Dame. And I was just like, what are all the, the, the things that went into this, this hugely revolutionary school? And none of it had anything to do with the topic that uh, interested me in high school. So I was like, ah, well, if I'm going to find a link between music and architecture that's interesting enough to discuss, it's not going to be about the compositions themselves. It's not going to be a purely music theory um, conversation and like breaking down, like this is how this note relates to um the East End. This is how this part of the composition relates to the chapel. Or I, I wasn't going to find any of that. I'm sure it exists out there, but my ability to do that kind of research has deteriorated to such a point where I, I was unable to find that kind of stuff. So listeners, um, if you know of a book or a research article or someone um, who knows that information, please send it our way. But uh, I was I was too dumb to find it on my own. Uh, and that that's not to say that there wasn't a whole bunch of other really interesting stuff that, that fell out of it. It just wasn't necessarily related to the thing that I was originally interested in, which is serendipitous and awesome, but it's, uh, um, it's different. Before we move to the, the, the thing you did end up finding, a question about uh, your previous interest. When you say that they were writing compositions for the building they were in, um and that uh, they were matching ratios how much of that was from your understanding intentional where like they were actively trying to get ratios to match because someone did a calculation somewhere versus this sounds good and they didn't necessarily know that this sounds good because it matches the ratio of the room so composers uh, vary from person to person, but it is not rare to have composers who would do things just for fun that's esoteric to their profession. So there, are, there's a lot of meaning built into musical phrases that are meaningful to composers, um, whether or not they came from one person um, or they came from this place. Um, and it's not unlike, I'm trying to think of the, the puzzles that exist in newspapers, that are like the cryptograms. Sudoku? No, not so, Sudoku, but like uh, cryptograms where it, it, you've got a cipher message and you've got some something that you're trying to figure out. And I, I didn't have this, this conversation thread in mind before, so I might be misattributing it. Uh, to the wrong composer, but I'm just going to say Mozart, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but he would put out compositions that weren't necessarily to be played, 
but to be consumed by other composers. And then those composers would write compositions back and it would be almost a form of letter writing, but with music. I don't know if that was Mozart, but I do know that uh, Mozart's teacher, Haydn, would put essentially jokes in his music in the phrases that you would only get if you are well-versed in musical theory or whatever. And like you would see that he spelled out a name or something in, in a various phrase or something like that. Like this one phrase would say apple or bad apple. What? I make... I make was that a... I was trying to make a, a, a callback. <laughs> To Save the callbacks for Zach. How Zach was trying, <laughs> Zach was trying to say "Bad Apple," with, you know, classical music last episode didn't work, didn't land. Continue, crickets. Uh, so that sort of intentionality of embedding ideas into the structure of the music certainly exists. Whether or not it existed at the time of the Notre Dame School of Music, whether or not the compositions of the Notre Dame School of Music were intentional in this regard of including the architecture in it, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure to your original question, did some composers intentionally embed the dimensions of the building into their music composition? That is, That was sort of the thesis argument of the, the paper I wrote back in high school. So I'm pretty confident of saying yes. That is really interesting. I've, I have not explicitly heard that before, and I'd love to hear more about that. Um, and of course, there's always sort of one of those chicken and the egg things where like, well, did the building come first or did the idea come first or did the thing derive from this? I mean, like even the dimensions of Notre Dame, right, of say the height of the aisles versus the height of the central vessel. Um, if you watch the Nova special building the great cathedrals on Nova, they go into some pretty great lengths talking about some theories various archaeologists have of saying that they were trying to pull these different numbers of different heights and proportions directly from the Bible, where they try to use like, oh, 30 cubits to this height and 60 cubits to this height because they're trying to replicate the Temple of Solomon and what that looked like. So, you know, where does it begin and where does it end? You know, if somebody's copying the dimensions of Notre Dame, well, then they're really copying the dimensions of the Temple of Solomon, you know? It's sort of just like one thing leads to another. And when you don't have Netflix... You have a lot of time to just channel your boredom into these works of art. Yeah, how did people exist without the internet? I would love to have an episode about boredom, but let's neither here nor there. <laughs> All of our episodes are about boredom. Oh, Ayo. no crickets after that. Well, when you mentioned uh, the word, when you mentioned the word esoteric, one, I had to type it in my dictionary just to make sure I knew what it meant, and then two, I thought, oh, esoteric. That literally describes our whole audience. Yep. <laughs> I think you might want to say us. I don't know if you want to call our audience esoteric. That doesn't seem like a good way to grow them. Welcome to esoteric theater. I mean, there's nothing negative about esoteric, is there? I don't think so. Maybe? I don't think so. It's like Maybe? 10% pejorative. <laughs> looking up pejorative. <laughs> <laughs> While you're looking up stuff, uh, the three of us have played games quite a bit. And Arcane is a word that I think has crossed our path uh, a lot of times in different contexts. Um, but the definition of arcane, while not completely separated from the way that's being used, also has an interesting definition as well. I get arcane and archaic confused in, in how to use them. I always want to think arcane means archaic, but it doesn't. I'm a pretty prescriptive person when it comes to the use of language, so I'm okay with 
the use of arcane being just uh, magical, but it had uses other than magical beforehand. Oh, yeah. Right. Which is understood by few, mysterious, or secret. Yeah. It's kind of, it kind of means esoteric, but with a little bit more of a mystical quality. Well, it, I wanted to also kind of call back again to earlier what we were talking about to the evolution of Gregorian music, because again, I was learning a little bit about this this week myself. I learned how Gregorian chant did evolve over time. And one thing I found particularly interesting was how, I guess, around the third century AD, that Christian plain chant was really quite in unison. A choir of monks that all just sing one note together. I mean, to some various melody or, you know, some basic theme, but there would be no contrasting multiple different notes happening simultaneously throughout the music. It would just be a single note. Everybody would be singing over and over again. Monophonic. Yeah, monophonic. Thank you. And I think a lot of people, when they think of Gregorian chant, they probably think of that. I think a lot of the Gregorian chant that gets used in Hollywood is that. Um, We've mentioned once or twice Pillars of the Earth, the miniseries. They do a lot of of that unison Gregorian chant there. Uh, If you are a classics lover of some of the classic movies, uh, Beckett uh, with Richard Burton from 1964. uh, There's a classic scene where the bunch of monks uh, all singing in unison Gregorian chant as well. So... I know we're doing multiple tangents in this one, but... This is actually getting right back on topic. It's true. Tom was trying to bring it back to the main line. It's true. Yeah, Dave's just derailing. I am. Uh, you you sent this clip of Beckett to us beforehand uh, so we could, uh, could watch it and hear the Gregorian. And this reminded me that this isn't the first time I've heard you reference Beckett, but you just kind of made it sound like that lovers of classic movies like you you don't love classic movies why do you watch beckett why is beckett in your head where does this come from um well i i don't know i in fact it's probably a movie i haven't seen all the way through from start to finish it's a movie that i've seen just like a lot of parts of from oh i watched this clip here and i watched this clip there you know just through like oh on youtube here youtube there is it just because it has cathedrals in it no uh for one thing if you've watched Pillars of the Earth, which is historical fiction, uh, Beckett takes place like just a few decades after that with Thomas Beckett, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is a contemporary of King Henry II, uh, who is, we'll just say, a figure who shows up at the end of Pillars of the Earth. So it's just a time period in general that is interesting and coincides very much with the building of cathedrals. So I think that makes a little bit of sense that I would be more aware of stuff that surrounds that time period. Gotcha. Anyways, Gregorian chant. Gregorian chant. So in order to get to the sort of ecclesiastical music, ecclesiastical music of Bach, that is polyphonic. Massively polyphonic. Massively polyphonic. The It has to go through that evolution. Yeah. So there was another great video that talked a bit about the evolution of Gregorian chant or or organum music in particular. And they said, uh, we'll put the link in our show notes as well, but um, they said around the 8th century, somebody had the idea to add young boys to join the fully grown men who were singing as monks. And then you could have them basically singing a note and then one octave higher. And so they were almost singing in unison that way. So that was a little bit of an evolution. 
And then finally, you get to about the ninth century, and you then start to have situations where um, a few more notes are sprinkled here and there. Um, in particular, around this time, they start to add, I think, what's called a drone note. I think what you alluded to earlier, Zach, where they might have most people singing the melody, but then one or two poor lost souls in the back of the choir that would just sing one note the whole time, uh, the whole time. And it sort of was the beginning of what evolved today as harmony. So those minor additions, certainly going from one voice to two voice is, um, in, in computer science, it, it's always hard to go from n equals one to n equals two, and then a lot easier to go from n equals two up and up and up and up. Two is an important number. Yeah. And so this sort of development in ecclesiastical music of the period of adding in additional notes, I think just sort of, it doesn't exactly explode at the end of the late medieval period. It seems that the, that the popular style of motet was four voice polyphony and that took a, over a couple hundred years to to go from one voice to four voice um which isn't terribly impressive considering now you'll have a three-piece band that does like bass guitar lead singing and drums so it's four instruments spread over three people each instrument also will have multiple counterpoints so your average garage band is doing more complicated music than you would find at the the late medieval era. Yeah. And was there a difference between the music that was being done in the church versus secular music? I have to believe so. I have to believe so. I was looking this up and a lot of the stuff that I was finding online was saying that the records for secular music or folk music are just poor the oral tradition in folk music is really strong, um, and especially in the medieval period, you're not going to find records of it very easily, or at least I couldn't find any. But there's a, a strong, strong, strong tradition of composers that we would consider to be classical composers um, taking melodies directly from the folk music of their period and of their area. Because it's it's fascinating to me to think of a world where the only music that you would hear would be non-harmonic. Like, it just feels so intrinsic to the human ear that just in everyday life, people singing or whatever, that someone would try out harmony. So I like it feels like that must have existed secularly if for some reason it didn't exist in the church for some doctrinaire reason. Yeah, so you see cultures all over the world have polyphonic uh, compositions uh, in their their traditional music. Uh, a, a lot of the problem corroborating this is that, you know, records from the 1100s are, are pretty poor when it comes to, like, writing down what music was like at that time. Right. But traditions all across the globe where you wouldn't expect cross-pollination to have come from... Paris church composers to influence like Polynesian music. Right. Like the, the, that invention of polyphony exists everywhere. It's almost risible to believe that it spawned at this point of time uh, in this particular location. Uh, it has to have come. It's uh, like, it's, it's an unfathomable to think of the, the universe in which polyphony didn't exist 
before the 1100s. Yeah. I guess that's why it gets the it gets the credit in the Notre Dame School of Music, though, because I don't know if we straight out said this. I think that the invention that the Notre Dame School of Music is famous for is introducing polyphony into church music. Yes. And since church music is what we have records of primarily, historically, that's the instance where we can point to, even if it's not necessarily right. the true introduction of polyphony, it's, it's the introduction of it to record-keeping um, m- music. Right. We're not necessarily saying that Notre Dame um, is the only place that they had new inventions to this kind of music, but like you said, historically, since so few records survive from the Middle Ages, that uh, this was a place where some of that music actually managed to make it make its way all the way to today. Now, there's actually a composer, um, again, as usual, I will say in extremely poor French, I believe his name is pronounced Peyote. Okay, I can't even do this. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, her na- his name is spelled P-E-R-O. O T I N Piotta, I think. He, uh, there's several different pieces that actually I've seen appear weirdly coincidentally on the internet in the last year or two. Probably because of Notre Dame's fire, honestly. I think people were looking at all of the uh, all the, the big impact that Notre Dame has had on our culture. There's also certainly no way that the YouTube and Google algorithms have figured out that you like things associated with Notre Dame, and so it's going to serve you up more of that. Probably true, yes. But I think also when we talk about the Notre Dame School of Music, it's I, from what I learned, from what I read, it, it sounds like that people shouldn't be thinking so much like, oh, school, you know, people in classrooms sitting at desks learning from teachers and professors, Right. I think the word school here is a very, very loosely adapted word, more or less referring to just a handful of composers who all sort of collaborated around the same time, not necessarily even in one building. Does that sound right, Zach? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think it's human nature to think about a school in the context that we're, we're living in, which is that building. But it's not completely foreign to think about a school of thought. That's a good analogy. Which is not isolated to a particular building. And that this school of music. School of magic. Yeah, school of magic as well, which is uh, not just in a particular building, but in multiple planes of existence uh, simultaneously. I like how we're all nodding our heads like as if this isn't even a joke. Yeah, I mean, the muggles don't understand it. But... <laughs> well, speaking to David's point just a little, little bit ago where he expressed skepticism, I guess, uh, over, you know, how could a human being who lived earlier than the times of these composers when these harmonies were first being invented, uh, how could a human being not be aware of the concept of harmony and listening to harmony and thinking about harmony just even in your head? And I admit, I really struggled with this one, too, when I was sort of learning that, you know, harmony was a, a concept that was not around forever. You know, people haven't always had harmony as sort of, you know, something you grew up with or think about. Um, and I was sort of making the analogy like, you know, what is it like to have existed before the wheel was invented? Uh, is it the same thing with harmony, where you don't really appreciate harmony until you've been educated about it and exposed to it enough? If somebody had grown up only knowing unison chant from the early Gregorian chant, early Christian plain chant, and then they suddenly were exposed to modern day harmony that you and I take for granted today. Would they not like it? Would they think it would be a real ear sore? Discord. Discordant. 
Yeah, I mean, probably. But I'm I'm trying to think if you're saying that the average person in the uh, 1100s would not have been exposed to harmony. And I think my and David's argument is they would have been. The church just wasn't doing, wasn't the source of it. Yeah. Well, I, I I guess from what again what I read that maybe there was some harmony out there, but that it might not have been as prolific as I originally expected it to be. I think it's it's just in what culture is it prolific in? Is it prolific in ecclesiastical music? No, I think it, I think all of the research that that we have done, which is we're not experts in this field, but in ecclesiastical music of the early medieval era in Europe that it was monophonic but that's like th- this is the problem of like the do you discover the new world did it not exist before you landed on it just because not every single country in Europe was aware of the new world doesn't mean that some people didn't know about it right like Vikings had landed there well before the Spanish did. So just because polyphonic music wasn't a fact of composition in church music doesn't mean that it wasn't a fact of non-church music, secular music. Oh, sure. I I don't know. Uh, There's, you know, we'd have to find other sources of data or information to answer that question. I mean, one thing I just looked up was when when is the earliest organ? We talked about dancing on organs a few times, and it looks like the organ, the earliest known ones, was a Roman invention in like the third century or so. Uh, so I, I don't know necessarily if that organ could play two notes at once, but I have to imagine that by the time organs were existing in the second millennium, they definitely were able to play multiple notes at once. But your cajolity doesn't even go far enough, right? All you need is two people singing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of something that you can prove because you can't prove that two people sung together in the past. That's that's what I mean about credulity. I don't need a, a Descartian proof about whether or not someone sang together in harmony before the 1100s. Sure. That's an extraordinary claim, and I would need extraordinary evidence. Yeah. Just like having an organ also doesn't mean that you were playing more than one note at the same time. Like you could still only press one note on an organ. Theoretically. It sort of defeats the the purpose of having it. Well, and anytime I ask the question, like, what would it have been like to, you know, live this way without having the concept of this and that, right? You know, I mean, you don't have to go back to ancient times to find brains that think differently than yours. Again, I mentioned my wife, who's I've got a very different skill set than my own. I've got a lot of musical training and she does not. Um, so, you know, she probably doesn't conceive of music with the harmonies that I'm even talking about right now. I like to take the stance that people haven't evolved significantly in the past 100,000 years. And that the Romans who drew graffiti in uh, England were amused by that in the same manner that I'm amused by it today. Mm. Or the students in my classroom. Or the students in your classroom. There are some ideas that we've grown up with that make it easier for us to process some of the facts about modern life that I think if you just took a Roman and dropped him into modern society, 
learning English aside, they would have some trouble navigating modern life. But if you were to take a Roman infant and then grow them up in modern life, that they would have no more difficulty navigating modern life than, than any other infant of, of our time. Well, to make the connection of that to music specifically, one thing I know, a, a seemingly universality of the human ear and music, at least based on looking at multiple cultures that, as you talked about, Zach, wouldn't have had a way to interact with each other. Yeah. The concept of a fourth and a fifth, the perfect fourth, the perfect fifth in music uh, the perfect fourth is the opening of the wedding song. Da, 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 da. That's a fourth. And perfect fifth is opening of Star Wars, right? Da, 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 da. That's a fifth. Those are universal. Almost every culture came up with those on their own. Um, so there's something about that and the ratio of the, uh, the frequencies or something. Sure, again, you could sing that just... I could just one person doing that, but part of the beauty of a fourth and a fifth is that you can layer them on top of each other. I can sing a tonic note. Tom could sing the the fourth above it, and it sounds really good together. So if all cultures discovered that that sounded uh, uh, good, almost certainly they were singing them on top of each other too. Yeah, and I think we we keep on going back to the the problem of a lack of records. Right. I want to go back to the notation part a little bit because I think that is like a real true innovation out of the Notre Dame School of Music, uh, where prior to them, there was notation for relative pitches in musical notation. One of the actual inventions that I think can actually be attributed to them that doesn't come from folk music or tradition is relative tempo. So in notation. So relative tempo would exist but writing it down was a was a real invention out of this period. So whole notes and half notes certainly existed prior to them, but the notation prior to them wouldn't note the difference between a whole note and a half note. Could you? Uh, I just want to make sure that I have the concept right. Define relative tempo. I'm so I'm used to thinking of relative pitch, but relative tempo is just so intrinsic to anyone who reads music that it, it's hard to get my mind around it. So I just want to make sure that I have it right in my head. So just imagine a, a sheet of musical paper that has the the lines on it to separate the, the note pitches and then you've got your clef or whatever uh, in there, but you don't know if the C sharp is a whole note, a half note, a 16th note. Gotcha. If you were to do like Google Maps to a place, uh, this was, this is true for me. Like, um, I went to a cabin and they were like, Google Maps will take you to this particular location. Make sure you turn at this sign. And that's that's one of the things that the, the Google Maps wouldn't tell you is that the sign is really important for turning. And so when you're given a, a sheet of musical notation, oh, this is da 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 and they're like, all right, when those are the notes, it really matters that you that you hold that da da Da, 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 right? And so that that kind of stuff, the notation, the duration of those notes and the relative tempo of those notes um, matters. Like how it only took eight episodes to get to John Williams in this podcast. Although weirdly enough, it was not me who brought him up. Maybe if John Williams did some music for Star Trek, it would have come up sooner. That's probably true. I don't think Tom would ever stop talking about it if John Williams did music for Star Trek. It's true. It's true. That's probably what this podcast would be about instead.
Yeah. Uh, if if John Williams had done the music for Star Trek, that would be just too much awesome in one basket. The world would explode. I will note that this has uh, been a podcast largely about harmony, and a couple of us have sung a little bit, but we have uh, done no demonstrations of harmony. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the, we'll, we'll, we'll use the internet as an excuse. It's, it's hard to stay synchronized over the internet, so we'll just say, well, that's why we couldn't do it, folks. I'm sorry. You know, I... I, I think I've mentioned before, of course, I've been to Notre Dame three times so far in my life. And each time I've actually been there all three times for Easter. Uh, I figure, you know, if you're going to go to Notre Dame, time it on a great Sunday to be there for. And um, you get to experience their full choir for multiple services throughout the day. The Notre Dame choir is spectacular and it is both men and women singing together. So you get a nice full range of choral people all singing together. And, you know, it's interesting if you do the comparison or contrast with how it is in England, because, of course, in the Anglican church, you still have your very traditional choirs that are made of just men and just choir boys. Um, And it's sort of interesting how that those different traditions diverged like that. You wouldn't have expected it. If I had to make a prediction like that, you know, I wouldn't have expected it to go that way, but it did. Do you guys have favorite composers out of curiosity? Gustav Mahler is my all-time favorite. Mahler's Second Symphony is my favorite work ever. I'm quite a fan of Tchaikovsky myself. I, I think your question, if it were phrased for me to answer, was what would be the, the first composer that pops into my head? Yeah. And I think that would probably be Beethoven. You seem to be a Beethoven man. Bombastic, and I don't give a shit about preconceived notions, and I'm happy to steal from anyone and make it sound like my own. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't going there, but you said it, buddy, not me. <laughs> That's your LinkedIn profile description. I guess I'll have to use a bleep in this episode after all. This is do another bell chime. I think it was yeah. great. Actually, it's a xylophone chime. Same thing. Is it a recording of you playing the xylophone? Yeah. Okay. Why? <laughs> is that is that extra funny? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's the one recording I did months and months and months ago that I just you know keep. I don't do it every time there's a new episode. <laughs> right. Although you don't want to know how long I spent trying to record a good, proper strike for various notes, because it's harder than you think to get just a good, perfect-sounding strike. I'm sure it's harder than I think, but I'm also sure it's easier than you think. That's probably true. That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredamedeparis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a nonprofit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day and happy building.